On today's episode of Stuff That Matters, we're joined by Chief Executive Officer Chosen Jenny Lord. Jenny is also a public speaker, advocate, adventurer, and expert in the child welfare space. Jenny first encountered the child welfare system in 1995 when her foster brother entered her family as a toddler. His story and adoption process had a profound impact in her life, really ignited the desire she has for systematic transformation ever since. Jenny also shared with us what Chosen is all about, where she sees it going in five years. She also talked about the foster care heat map, what it is, how it's used, and more. Jenny was incredibly informational. You can see how passionate she is about the work that she does, and we hope that you enjoy. So here she is, Jenny Lord. We are pumped to welcome on Jenny Lord, Chief Executive Officer at Chosen. She's a public speaker, advocate, venturer, healing children and restoring families with a transformational approach. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So, Jenny, could you um, tell our audience, just to, let's start off with your story. We'll talk a bunch about Chosen, but just, you know, Patrick gave you a sweet intro there, transformational change leader, but just tell us a little bit more about kind of who you are, um, do a little deep dive on, on what what is Jenny Lord's origin story in this space? All right. Well, um, personally, I am married and have four teenagers. Yes, wow. four, 13, 15, 16, 17. So I am in it, oh. the thick of it. And I wow. absolutely love this phase of parenting. It is so fun to see them maturing into young adults. Um, and professionally, I've been, con- well, let me say, personally, I've been connected to the foster care space for almost 30 years. I know I look younger, but um, I actually have a brother that was adopted out of foster care, and he and I are 17 years apart. He came into our family when I was 19. So that changed the course of my life. And um, professionally, I have been in this space for 15 years. I actually founded the organization and have led it through a pretty significant evolution to do what we do today. But it is the joy and privilege of my life to lead this work and to see families and children healing and on a path of restoration. Wow. That's, that's quite the story and and quite um, impressive launching your organization. And it sounds to me, Jenny, and maybe I'm wrong here, but Having a foster care brother come into your life, you said when you were 19? Yes. Talk to, talk a little bit about that. My wife is in the child welfare space. We have three of our own children. Um, and we've often talked about, you know, what other, how else can we serve? How else can we uh, make a difference? And and we floated the idea. And I don't need you, like, I don't want you to get too personal, but it certainly sounds like that was a, a, a a huge pivot point in your life, perhaps? It was. So he came into our family in 1995. And um, so I totally just gave my age there for any of you that are quick at math, but um, he was- It's not a math audience. It's not a math audience. No, no, no. Thanks for that. I feel so much better. Uh, He's 19 months old. He was 19 months old. And 
you know, my mom had raised three kids and we were all about to be out of the house. And she thought I have more love to give. She was young and really, you know, like many of our clients got into it with a good heart, but really not understanding the impact of trauma in his life. And I think largely the industry at that time did not understand the impacts of trauma. And so we, we lived through that. His adoption took four and a half years to complete. So it was my entire college journey was literally being face-to-face with the child welfare system. And I couldn't have articulated it then, but what I came to realize later in my twenties was I'm really a systems thinker. And what I saw was a system that is designed to protect children often brings them harm. And Uh, unintentionally, but the consequences are massive. And so for me, it was like, I want to get to the root of fixing some of these issues so that children are not suffering unnecessarily. And so that started my heart's journey, I think, for what I wanted to do. And I I now know that I'm really an advocate at heart, but certainly his story up close and personal uh, colored mine. Wow. Was that a conversation that the family had? How did it lead up? Like, again, you're, I know you're, you said your mom just felt like she had more to give, but how, did she go local, internet? Like, how did all that play out? Or again, like you said, I don't know what the system was like back then compared to the system. The system now still seems pretty not awesome. But yeah, can you just get, you know, give our audience a sense of like, was that a family decision and how did that all play out? And again, what was that like for you as a college student to, um, inherit a new brother overnight. So I'm the oldest of, uh, now I have three brothers and the only girl. And so for me, it was amazing. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a family decision, but certainly something that we all supported. My youngest biological brother was 15 at the time. And so it's like, yeah, my mom has this extra time. And, um, mm. she was so young that we just, we were very supportive of her, I think the interesting thing is I'm 17 years apart from him. My mom's 17 years older than me. So in some ways I had a, um, a motherly type role It's different, right? When you're that many years apart. So he would come and visit me in college and stay with me. And so we just had a really special bond and I always saw him as the shining star of our family. It was like the bonus that we didn't know we needed. And his journey has been, exceedingly difficult. Um, and you know, we just didn't know now what we, we didn't know then what we know now about the impacts of trauma on the brain and how that uh, manifests developmentally in a child and a youth's life. And so his journey has been very difficult. And I really see my work as part of his redemption story that, you know, what was true for us 30 years ago doesn't have to be true for all of the families that are facing similar scenarios today. Right. So, so building upon that is one of the things just kind of related to the work we do at New Hope is, you know, my team fields a lot of phone calls with folks uh, seeking services um, for their, for their children, biological, adoptive, adopted youth uh, or adopted children and and the common theme is accessing services seems to be confusing for most, right? And so we spend a lot of time guiding folks. Um, but another, there's a lot of themes, right? But one of the other themes that our our intake department sees is oftentimes there's very well-intended 
parents of adopted children who don't understand the trauma component of youth that they're adopting or or taking into their families. Um, have you seen a change with that since your family experience seeing it head on? And I think those that's what you said. Like, what's it look like today? Is there more information out there for families looking to adopt children in, into their homes? There are certainly more resources than there were then, but I still see a lot of the same patterns where families are getting licensed, whether it's international or domestically, to adopt in the education on the front end is very little. And, you know, the, the reality is you're combating human nature, which is people are excited about the journey. That doesn't mean the kid is going to be excited to be in your home, right? But you're trying to tell them, listen, this is going to be really hard. And we, my husband and I have been licensed foster parents before. So I sat in the classroom and I heard that perspective of thinking that's not going to be our story. We've already raised our three kids. Like we know how to parent. Um, so there's a naivete that comes with it despite all of the resources. But I will say, Mike, it's a great question because I think as an industry, we continue to do families a disservice in not really preparing them for the journey, not just preparing them, but setting them up long-term with the right resources at the right time in their child and youth journey. Um, I, I recently was interviewed by somebody for a podcast and this mom had she's in the healthcare field but she had adopted a five-year-old and a two-year-old I think both very early on in their life but her oldest was five she literally knew nothing about trauma when she started and I'm like okay so you're starting your journey 20 plus years after my family did and you were not educated by your agency about trauma and they had an interracial adoption and there was no understanding of the cultural challenges and competencies that are needed. So yes, there are more resources, but I think systemically we're still not doing a fantastic job on the front end. I wonder, I wonder how that is. That seems so impossible. It's, I, I don't have to try to figure out how that's possible. Is that just, it's, it's such a fragmented, you know, system of private, um public adoption private adoption local international probably like religious based non religious and just these folks aren't overseen by any kind of like governance that says hey bare, bare minimum make sure to talk to somebody about attachment before they adopt a kid who is going to have huge attachment issues like that just doesn't there's just nobody kind of policing quality in the adoption space well, there's definitely not no policing and there are, there's always requirements for licensure, right? Like maybe it's 20 hours or 30 hours, depending on state's requirements. But when we were going through foster care license training, I think our training was around 30 hours and you're watching these videos about medication management and seatbelts oh. that are like 20 years old. I mean, just low quality. And so, yes, I think there's not a governing body that's ensuring these key components are part of, and, and it's true, like you need to know a little bit about attachment, but on the front end, there's only so much that you can digest, right? And right. I think that, that is where chosen services are unique is that we're with a family in the journey, not just on the front end, but like as, the, as it's needed to help them understand the paradigm that's needed for parenting a child with a traumatic history, but also what is actually, what's actionable today that's going right. to make a difference in my home today. And you can only digest so much of that on the front end. 
But uh, yeah, and to your point, I mean, there's a healthy thing and parents being excited. And then obviously there's a vested interest in the agency wanting adoptions to happen. So you want to be honest with people, but you don't want to terrify them. And you also don't want to like pathologize all the kids because some kids struggle less with adoption than others. So I can see why it's a, it's a complicated thing. Um, you mentioned chosen, right? Tell us everything about, you know, let's start off with just kind of what chosen is, and then we'll kind of get into, you know, I'd love to hear the story about since you were there from its birth to now it's adolescence. I don't know if that's where you'd consider it developmentally, maybe a five adolescents, including your company, but yeah, tell us all about what does chosen do and who do you serve and what are you all about? Great. So we have a telehealth model that provides mental and behavioral health services for children and families that are impacted by trauma. And I would qualify that trauma by abuse, neglect, or loss. Um, so that is the primary focus of what we do, but it's all about healing and permanency for children. And what I mean by that is we really identified a need in the sector to walk with families long-term to help them stay together. I learned several years into having the agency that um, people were rehoming children, even kids who were adopted, uh, and that they were rehoming them because they couldn't handle the behaviors that manifested from trauma. People who had good hearts and well, well-intentioned that were fostering and then turning in their license and moving kids. And my heart was just broken as, as challenging as my brother's journey has been the idea of rehoming him, it was never on the table. I didn't, we didn't even know that that was a thing, but we had been early. Jenny, to people who have no clue, when you say rehoming, yeah. what does that actually mean? Yeah, the base example is like when a dog has to be rehomed because it's not a fit with the owners, right? And so um, that sounds terrible, but that was actually what was happening is that there's this you know black market, so to speak, of where children were being moved because the government doesn't regulate this uh, in any real fashion. And so it's like, Matt, you've got this kid in your home there. It's a ruckus. You know, the wheels are coming off right. there. My biological kids are struggling. My marriage is struggling. Like I can't do this anymore. We've got to find a new home for this kid. So that came on my radar about 2014. And in chosen's early days, we had been helping families with adoptions and I just was, my heart was broken all over again. The idea of rehoming a child or moving them because I know how destabilizing that is and how traumatic it is when a, a child experiences another loss. And that's what I would want any parent to know is that the, the kids, even if you're excited about fostering or adoption, like it's a loss for them. Adoption can be beautiful, but it is birthed out of loss. And so the idea of a child being moved unnecessarily because the parents didn't have what they needed to help them was just tragic to me. And so that was what I mentioned earlier about taking Chosen through an evolution to have the mission that we do today, which is really aimed that about 80% of our services are aimed on equipping caregivers to be an agent of healing in their own home. And that is with parent coaching, the right therapeutic resources, crisis intervention, practical evidence-based tools that are going to help them build a connection because it the brain science shows that it is connection that brings healing. Right. And right. unfortunately, when you have a child who has experienced 
you know, a, a negative past. And this is true with it, you know, even our biological kids, when they've gone through really hard things, it shapes the way they think it shapes the way that they act and parents unwittingly, they may not understand that the child probably doesn't have the language to articulate it. And our job is to equip them so that they can build that healing connection, that attachment that's actually going to keep them in the home and help them heal from what they've experienced. So you noticed, you noticed the trend, and this is happening in both foster homes and adoptive homes that they're taking the Smiths take in a kid. We think it's going to be great. Six months in, S is hitting the fan. We can't do it. So I make a phone call to the agent. I'm sure it's, again, I don't want to minimize that the, the people take a lot of time on these decisions, but ultimately they hit their boiling point. They call an agency and said, Johnny's got to go somewhere else. And then Johnny either goes back into the system or the agency finds the Joneses and prays that Johnny does a good job with the Joneses. And that's where you said, all right, Chosen's going to come in here before that phone call gets made and Johnny gets sent off to somewhere else because I'm assuming there's only so many times that can happen to a kid before he basically is going to give up on the idea of relationships. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I would say one other thing, Matt, you mentioned foster adoptive families. We also see the same thing with relative caregivers. You know, a child goes and lives with grandma and maybe they go into the home at five years old and then at 12, where it's a very typical developmental milestone, that child is entering adolescence. They don't understand what happened to them. They may even see the parents from time to time or they're in and out of their lives. Grandma loves Johnny. But then she's like, I can't handle him. I can't handle these behaviors. And he ends up in the system. So unfortunately, it's not just six months into care. It's oftentimes years into care. And we see that a lot with adoptive families. One of the things that that you mentioned, and I think it's a key here, is the long-term nature of what you guys do. Um, It came up in our very first episode with um, our guest and talking about the importance of having time. And, and and how important that is. Can you talk a little bit more about that model that you that you discussed where it's longer term? I assume you're meeting with families way before they have a child coming into their home. And, and to build on that a little bit is, do you ever have families who begin to understand exactly what they're getting into and say, oh, oh my, I didn't realize it was going to be this involved or this difficult. And you know what? We're going to we're not going to do this. Does that ever occur? Well, I'll tell you what, um, Mike, it's, it is, I wish we could say we have lots of families that are coming to us beforehand, but we don't, uh, maybe two out of thousands that we've served. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, we're going to get into later, I think, talking about the system of care and child welfare changes, but we're not a licensing agency. So I'm not licensing families to foster or adopt. They've got those requirements by their child placing agency or the adoption agency that they're working with. And so if you've got those 30 hours, you're just trying to get through the paperwork and do all the things. Like you're not looking for one more thing to do. I get that. And it goes back to that naivete. More about 80% of our families that come to us are actually in crisis. So they are at that point, they're rating the child's behaviors at a four out of five. They're rating their own stress levels, a four out of five. And they're saying, we can't continue like this, like something has to change or we've tried everything. So um, no, they're not coming to us uh, early on. But when a family comes to us, we're looking at the whole family system, not just 
the child that seems to be the problem, we're looking at the parent's history as well. Because oftentimes in my own parenting, I have four biological kids. I have my own triggers from my childhood that, you know, I can, I can flip like that. Right. And so sometimes parents are unaware of what, what is their own trigger that is actually, they're doing the reverse of what they want with Johnny. They're exacerbating the issue because of the way that they're reacting. So we're looking at the parent's history, looking at the child's history, and then we put together what's called a trauma responsive action plan that is tailored for that family. And we're doing clinical assessments, looking at nine trauma symptoms in the child at like anxiety, depression, PTSD. And we're also looking at parental stress levels. That gives us a very clear picture of what the family needs are. And within that plan that's tailored for that home, we're also going to be looking at the five developmental needs of that child. So spiritual, emotional, physiological, those sorts of things and addressing that within the plan. When a family starts working with us, they're going to have an assigned time that they're meeting with, we call them care managers, our direct care staff once a week. But the differentiator between us and any other case management, if you will, is it is very in-depth. We use a number of different curricula um, based on what the presenting needs are in the home to address what the family needs so that they can help their child heal. Uh, I'll give you um, an maybe not so common example. <clears throat> mirroring neurons. Have y'all heard of mirroring neurons? Mirroring. I haven't. <laughs> I don't think so. Neurons, yes. You go ahead and talk about it, and then I'll tell you if I've heard about it. So. Yeah. So, Matt, you've got, um, you, you have two daughters, right? Yes. yes. Two daughters. And so when they're telling you something, and they're excited and animated, and they're like, I can't wait for the the dance, you know, recital on Saturday. And if you're like this, yeah, me either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a flat animation, you're not mirroring your mm -hmm. child's neurons. You're you're not mirroring their affect. And gotcha. um, in any relationship, this is this is true. It could be with your staff, it could be with your spouse, but like when they're excited or they're sad or they're angry. If they're not seeing that responsiveness from you, there is going to be a block in the relationship. And what happens with our kids that have traumatic histories is they have been trying to read cues their whole life for survival. And they're, they're thinking, well, he's mad. He's not excited. I'm not going to tell him about this anymore. Like I did something wrong. I did something wrong. His face I, is telling me I did something wrong. He doesn't want to hear from me. I, He's not happy about what I'm happy about. And they internalize those messages. So unfortunately, we find that a lot in our space is that there is the parent is not matching the child's emotion. Like it, when, let's say when they're really upset about something and you might know as an adult, like it's not that big of a deal, but in their world, it's a big deal. And it's like, Oh, I don't get to go to my recital because I'm sick. And you're like, there's going to be another one. That's the wrong thing to say. And you've got to, to empathize with that child. That's what builds a relationship. So we have some unique tools like that, that we're using with families when it's appropriate, because I can tell when I'm interacting with an adult, if they're flat affect and they're not, they're showing no emotion. That's how they're interacting with the child. Yeah. It's so going to be a block in the relationship. As young parents, my wife and I um, heard 
a concept about serve and volley. Have you heard of this with little like babies, right? You know, and I always use the expression of when the, when my little, my firstborn child was on the, the changing station, there was a ton of serve and volley kind of, he'd make a face, make a face back at him, smile. And we, we, I have a lot of conversations around what is technology doing with that serve and volley for especially little newborns and their development and their interaction with their main caregiver. I think mm-hmm. I worry about that a lot, not necessarily personally with my family, but it, in general, there's a lot less of that when we're distracted by other things. So I didn't mean to take us down a technology road, but <laughs> your conversation around uh, mirroring neurons is is it reminded me of how important that was for us as a family raising our kids that we would do a lot of that. We called it servant volley. And I think my wife grabbed that from a conference somewhere. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And I, I think it's a, it's actually a, a appropriate side road because it, it's a good example of a really big messy topic that we have to address all the time with our parents of littles, adolescents and teens. Like how do you manage technology? It's scary. It's scary. And, you know, as a parent, like it can feel overwhelming and you feel like you're running them and then it becomes this big discipline battle. And we're teaching parents how to navigate that in a healthy relational way that you're not as an example. If they get a C and your expectation was you get A's and B's like taking technology away is that's not an appropriate reaction to the C that has nothing to do with the behavior, right? Unless that's an actual problem and and, um, school performance. So just managing things like that, that are real challenges for families that are causing big battles. We're helping them in a real time way, navigate that terrain. The other thing, Mike, because I got off on uh, mirroring neurons and I want to say this about our differentiator is, they do have their once a week time with a, their care man- manager. Average length of time that we're working with a family is about six months based on their particular plan, but they have access to their direct care manager at any time. We use that. It's called dosing and, and it's based on science that shows that people heal when they are in charge of the frequency and duration of the therapeutic exchange. Mm-hmm. And so you can think about this in your own relationships at home. Sometimes you don't need to sit down for an hour and do conflict resolution. It's just like a, you know, quick five minute, like, Hey, I'm I'm sorry. The way I said that it sounded like really short with you. And it's like this eye contact and exchange. And just, it's these tiny therapeutic exchanges that actually bring healing. And so we provide that for our families because I like to say children don't melt down between only eight and five Monday through Friday. And when you need help, you need help. So they can call us at any time. And that's just a game changer in really seeing a faster recovery. When kids don't melt down in those timeframes and also not everybody needs exactly a 45 minute therapy session every week. Sometimes I need 60 and sometimes I need five. And but like this kind of arbitrary clock watching structure that we've put around mental health is is not not helpful. So it sounds like your crew is entirely flexible. Again, I keep picking on Johnny. I hope there's no Johnny's out there to take offense. But if Johnny's struggling Friday at eight, I'm gonna call my person, but I also got my weekly check-in. What kind of you guys have been doing this 
um, you know, not for forever, but for a while now, what kind of results are you seeing with those families we talked about that were giving up on the kid, giving up on their situation? And I, you know, I, I'm assuming again, for those families, it's gotta be, that's gotta be devastating. I mean, it's devastating for the kids, but I can't imagine all the excitement that goes into bringing a young person in your home and having to admit that we can't do this anymore. It's just heartbreaks all around. So what kind of impact are you guys seeing with your services? Yeah. Before I answer your question, Matt, I just want to say that for anybody who's listening, who has got to that point where maybe they made that decision and is, is so painful. Like I, I really, I cannot imagine how painful that is and the shame that comes with that. And and so this is not about condemning anyone who has because right. people feel right. like they've exhausted all options, right? But I want there to be a global national knowledge that it doesn't have to be we have no alternative. Like that's that's what we're trying to disrupt is there is and can be a dis- there can be an alternative. When I say 80% of families come to us in distress, they do. And we've been using this model since 2016. We started with a pilot, a very small pilot with five families. This year we'll serve almost 2,000 individuals. So we've served several thousand families in the last seven years, and we've had a 99% success rate in keeping families together. I'm extremely wow. proud of the work that our team does. It's hard. It's messy. You're you're going into the hardest parts of people's lives and stories where they might be telling you things that you've never heard before. And um, but they want help and they want, they want their child to have help. They want hope for themselves. And so with that 99% success rate, we've had two disruptions in all of that time and not keeping families together. And, you know, I think it's a testament to when people have the right tools, when they're in the ditch to get out of the ditch and they've got somebody walking alongside them to say, you can do this. We're next to you. And they're empowering them with the strengths in their own family to, come together, you know, it's a game changer. Wow. 99% is pretty good. I'm not going to lie. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good number. Um, yeah, I think so. That's amazing. I mean, that's an, that's incredible impact. That's, that's um, especially again, like you said, these are not, you know, we can talk about why we can't do prevention services largely probably because nobody pays to put out fires that haven't started yet. But the fact that the families you are seeing, if not for some kind of intervention, they are probably on a, 80 mile an hour pathway towards this thing blowing up. So this is not like that outcome is not guaranteed, right? So you guys truly, they are driving one way. By the end of their time with you, they are driving another way or they've at least parked for a little bit and they're not driving. So that, yeah. that, that's, I don't know, that's incredible stuff. You know, one of the things, um, one of our stories, I'm just thinking about a mom of a, you know, 16 year old boy that had been in her home for eight years and she came to us I don't like this kid. He's, he's disrespectful. He is um, belligerent. He's violent towards his brother. He doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't want to hang out with me and nor do I want to be around him. And it's when those are the things that we're hearing. Right. And so super difficult. And um, you're trying to, it it really is like a hell Mary at this point. Um, But we have seen countless situations like that turn around where they're learning to build small steps towards bridging that relational divide to understand that child and connect with him about what he wants to connect with. I like to use the analogy of like, 
you know, my 13 year old son, what he cares about is like throwing the football, working out. And so like, I'm not going to call Judah into the kitchen and be like, let's make some cookies together. Like he could care less about that. Like, but if I go throw the football with him, we don't even have to talk about anything that's important. 10 minutes, like that's building a bridge. And so it's just teaching Mm -hmm. parents things that sometimes may be counterintuitive because the relational gap has gotten so wide, but learning to build those small bridges and then they start to see a glimmer of hope. So one of the things that we're doing with our families is not just equipping and empowering them, but we're holding them accountable to the changes that they're supposed to be making. So they have homework every week and it's not like writing pages. It's like actionable steps. And then the next week they're going to report out, well, how did that conversation go with Johnny that you said you were going to talk about, you know, whatever the performance school, how he's acting at school and just, and we've already prepared them for let's role play, right? Like let's talk about how it might go and they're anticipating these changes, but then they're reporting back the next week. And that accountability is a game changer because that's why we like to say trauma-informed care is not enough. You can know the right thing and not do the right thing. We have to respond to the child and our whole family in a way that is trauma responsive so that we're actually making progress in the right direction. Well, it, sound, it sounds super practical too, which is all, like which is awesome. Because again, I think sometimes we come at people with theory. And like you said, all these people have sat through 30 hours of classes where they just probably their eyes kind of glazed over, but now they're, now they're in the fight and they're in the thick of it. And every night dinner time is an absolute cluster. And now I'm going to get a call from my therapist that starts talking to me about some kind of like theory. And it's like, what are you talking? Like you're missing that. Like there's a fire, where's the water and how to like, what do I, so it sounds like you guys get it, get very practical and get kind of like on a ground, um, level, which is probably, you know, where some of those outcomes are coming from. seems like just human beings helping out other human beings versus this kind of sometimes mental health where you just make things too wonky and we're just firing over people's heads when they're just struggling and need practical help. Yeah, it's it. What we can see from our work is even with non-clinical interventions, you can get clinical results. So those assessments that we do in the beginning when we're measuring those clinical factors we measure those at six months, 12, 18 months, because we want to make sure it's going in the right direction. And then six months into care, we can see depression, anxiety, PTSD come down and go in the right direction. Parental stress levels go down. And if there's a marker that's not, that's an indicator of like, we've got to make an adjustment. Let's address this specific thing that is not moving in the right direction. Sometimes that's a different intervention. Um, but it is incredible that just by getting really practical, um, how many mental and behavioral health needs we can actually attend to. So, so Jenny, and I'm assuming some of those non-clinical interventions that you, that you, that you spoke of, those are the tools, right? Those are the tools that you're giving families. And it made me think a little bit about my experience doing direct care in a residential setting where we were given a lot of wonderful tools to do exactly what you said. They they were non-clinical tools that ended up creating great clinical outcomes. And I'll use the example, I was talking to a buddy of mine. I mean, I'm old too, and I'm not gonna go into ages again, but one of 
he was talking about a young man that was in his group in this residential setting. And he would always have to remind him to do simple things like tie your shoes in the morning or wear your belt, whatever those small things. Right. And shoe tying was a big deal because it was an outdoor wilderness program and you didn't want him to trip. So here's the example. Right. And one of the tools that we used was you always want to catch a kid doing something positive or good. And he said, I remember the first time I think I used that, we were walking to the dining hall up a trail and I stopped the entire group because I had noticed, we'll go with Johnny because here's a good one, that Johnny had tied his shoes. And it was a day where I didn't have to remind him. I didn't have to tell him. I didn't, you know, he did it on his own. And although very small, the, the, the fact that he remembered and did it on his own, I stopped the entire group and I said, Johnny, great job. I didn't have to remind you today. You made my day, buddy. And we kept on going. And Johnny, the, the small, the, that impact from those, that small 30 second interaction is meaningful and um, created that relationship and helped build that relationship that he, they eventually built together. And some clinical change occurred because of that small little tool of catching kids when they're doing something right. So yeah. I don't even know where I started, but that's where I ended. No, but when you, you don't need a master's degree for that. You know, you don't, right, you just, you don't need a master's degree for that. Right. But you know, um, Mike, and you called me old too. So I'm going to yeah, find yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to cut that out. We're trying to get more guests on the podcast. Hey. <laughs> we, we don't want insults now. Oh no. <laughs> I'll forgive you. But it reminds me of a story that I heard this morning in our leadership meeting it was actually a, one of our headlines. It was a client headline. It was a win. There's a family that we've been working with. They have three adopted kids. They, they adopted two together, like a sibling group. And then they recently adopted a child. They, he came into the home at 12 and he's 14 now. Lots and lots of issues, as y'all can imagine. And one of the issues is that the youth, he, um, he wets himself and soils himself. And, and you, you can imagine that's how, I mean, you're living in this space with residential, like, you know, how challenging that is to, to change and to manage. And not only that, but it was causing extreme frustration with the family because he was just putting the clothes back in his dresser. Right. So nothing mm-hmm. was ever clean and he's wearing the same clothes again and like, just wasn't getting it. And one of the things, one of the curricula that we had to use with this mom and dad is um, a, around executive functioning and executive functioning, whether you know that's a new term to you or not, it's just, we all know the brain develops over time and we're not fully, we don't have fully developed brains until like mid twenties, right? Guys, it's a little bit longer. Um, but when a child is 14 and they've had extensive trauma in their background, that has actually stunted the development of their brain. So even though he's 14 by age, he may be acting like four in some cases of where it, he just didn't get the appropriate care from right. a loving, safe caregiver that he needed to for his brain to mature in a healthy way. So, so we're w- working with his family on executive functioning and big, huge win. They recognized that he was really having a challenge with even knowing what clothes to pick out. So they're frustrated because he smells and he's keep getting all of his other clothes dirty. So they took all of the clothes out of the, the room, which could sound like punishing. But when they said, hey, buddy, we took out all the clothes and we're just going to lay out what you can wear 
tomorrow, yeah. the next day. And he was like, thank you so much. That is so helpful. Mm. Imagine that. Right. He doesn't have the executive right. functioning to manage this mm. challenge right now and to pick out, to notice, separate and all of that. Like, so it's building these little tiny baby steps towards, you know, maybe the next step is he gets to pick something out. Right. that he wants, right? Like giving him that choice, like we would do with a very young child. But some of those very practical things like the tying the shoes and things that you and I may take for granted, because we taught our kids that when they were four and five years old, they didn't get that. And bridging that divide with parents on expectations, like right. the one of the biggest inhibiting factors to making progress is is parental expectations. Expectations. Yeah. And so we're tearing all of that down to get to yeah. a place that's healthy for the relationship. New hope. Our name. Our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin. New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They've accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. So, you know, let, let's zoom out a little bit because I think beyond your role in Chosen, I think you are, you know, moving towards being, you're, you're trying to change the system kind of across the board. So let's just talk about the child welfare system. Again, I think, I would, you know, we always talk about, we're hoping that this audience finds, uh, we're hoping that we find an audience of quote, normal people, like my parents. Like my parents, when my parents hear the word child welfare, they don't know in immediately what that means. Like that's shorthand to us. They don't know what the heck that means. When I talk to people about the foster care system or what we do, I still hear people say like an orphanage. You know, like people just don't, this is such a small sliver, um, but you know, it, what is happening in child welfare right now? What are some of the trends you're seeing? What has you discouraged as a leader? What has you encouraged? Let's just like, let's beat up and dig into this system a little bit. Well, that might take another hour, but I'm going to yeah, do my best to unpack uh, <laughs> those questions. Um, so child welfare, 
Yes, I thank you for giving me space to talk about this. You know, going back to my own origin story of wanting to get to the root of problems. Uh, when I was about 25, 26, I was in graduate school actually for counseling. And I realized, oh, like, I don't want to sit and counsel people all day long. Like, I actually want to get to the root of community system problems and like solve for that. And that is what gets me super excited and passionate in talking about systemic transformation, because largely in 28 years, I've been connected to this industry. So little has changed. And that's, that is discouraging about, you know, the same amount of kids are in foster care. It seems like a revolving door, a lot of the same challenges and child welfare. I'll bullet down to this. It was, it was a government institution for making sure that kids were safe. That was how it began, was children who could no longer live at home, they, the government wanted to make sure they're safe. And so largely our entire child welfare system over the last 50, 60 years has been constructed around physical safety of children. And that is woefully inadequate. We cannot only ensure that children are physically safe. Of course, that's first and foremost. Are the meds locked up? Where are the guns? Where's the ammunition? You know, do they have their seatbelts on? But a child, all like all of us, you have you're not just you don't only have physical needs. And so we have largely, as a system of care, neglected the emotional and psychological well-being of children. We have underestimated the impact of loss. Foster care used to be like seen as this holy grail answer. And that child, and you all know this, largely if a child is removed from mom and dad, despite what has happened to them, where do they want to go back to? Back to mom and dad. They want to be, that's who they miss. That's who they ask for. That's who they long for. And they could be transplanted into a very loving, great family and have the world given to them they have still experienced a loss. And we have neglected that as a system of care and not compensated in how we're we're training the adults who care for them. So my passion is that we would move from a child welfare system to a family and child well-being system because a child does not heal in a vacuum. They don't heal in a therapist's office. They don't heal in residential Children were designed to be in a family and they heal in the context of a family. And so you've got to address the family, the whole family system needs and with and the child in that context. And there's got to be a massive shift. That that is what I'm passionate about. So basically we're getting it all wrong. We've been doing that for <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, that's no. no. I mean, it's, well, no, to your point though, I think it's such a um it, it's a daunting. It, it, it's a daunting task. I mean, because you said like these things are deeply entrenched and ingrained and the next generation of child welfare workers is getting trained by the current generation of child welfare workers, which was trained by the last generation of child welfare workers. If those people don't shift, if there's not big structural changes, again, there's individual pockets of people doing incredible work, highly empathetic social workers out there trying to do the best they can but it seems like there's probably systems and structures and even just rules in place about when kids get removed from homes that are just kind of working antithetical to everything that we know about trauma. Yeah, so um, yes, and I don't wanna say we're getting everything wrong because there are very well-meaning people 
I mean, I, I always say no one gets into child welfare because they want right. to do people get oh. into it because they want to do good and they want it to impact the life of a child. We have a board member and she's a healthcare professional now, but when she was started early in her career, she started as a caseworker and she said kind of what you just said, Matt, like when, she, when, you know, Sally was safe, the five-year-old that she's dropping off at 10 PM physically safe. She's moving on to the next child to make sure they're physically safe. Like she wasn't right. thinking about the things that we're talking about because right. there's so many kids and like the needs of what she was, was attending to was just making sure children are physically safe. What I would say is this, our, our system of care has, they're not, they haven't attended to that policy. Doesn't attend to that. It's not what the state's paying for. And right. I was naive enough when I got into this, I don't have a government background. I didn't have a um, insurance background. So my question wasn't what will the government pay for? It was what do these children and families need in order to heal and stay together? And then we built something to make that possible. And then we figured out how to pay for it. We're still figuring out that part um, to some degree. But I think that that's been the challenge is that we have a healthcare structure that only pays for X and Y, and they're not going to pay for ABC or mm -hmm. they haven't historically. And that, that has been, you know, very limiting on how we design our system of care. But again, I, I you know, I, I'm being facetious on that. Everything's broken, but I like that because it seems like there needs to be, there's a lot of calls to action that need to happen. And there's a lot of wake up calls that need to happen. So sometimes we need to, beat up a system pretty good. And we're not beating up the people within it. Like you said, I think individual people are, are phenomenal, probably underpaid, overworked social workers who got in because they love kids and they love families and they try to make a difference. But structurally, this thing needs to get taken down. Like This needs to get beat up quite a bit. So I think it's okay to say there's a lot, there's some massive things that are broken. Um, we are not serving our kids in foster care well and we're not getting ahead of this problem if it's the same amount of kids 40 years um we're doing something wrong and i think it's okay for us just to well and there's so up. many there are so many lawsuits uh that show kids exiting the system that are worse off than when they came into the system and that's a tragedy and as somebody who works in the system like I want to change the narrative. We don't change the narrative and we don't change the outcome unless we're asking different questions. Mm. I think that holistically the the people in the and with power to do things have not been asking different questions and we're going to keep getting the same results. So Matt used an analogy earlier actually more than once about fire and you know bringing water to it and, and waiting for there actually to be a, a fire. I once sat in a conference where uh, the, the the keynote speaker talked a lot about different levels of care, right? Foster care, our um, outpatient models, all the way up to residential models. And this gentleman made the argument, he was from the University of Colorado, and again, this was some time ago, I'm not really sure why my long-term memory is working better than the short term today, but he made this argument that um, if you were the purchaser of those services, if you were the if you were the ones cutting the checks, the government, you would not fund the programs that he was. You wouldn't fund residential because the bang for your buck, the outcome 
the outcomes that you're seeking, you're not purchasing those. It, it's not worth the money. His argument, and I, and I might butcher this a little bit, was that dollars need to be spent in preventative programs like nurse family partnerships, uh, programs where um, at-risk families, at-risk young moms are identified early on and someone's placed with that mother or that family long before the child ever leaves the home. So Jenny, can you speak to that a little bit? Are there are there programs out there? Is chosen one of them? Like wh where do the dollars get spent? How do we prevent some of this? Yeah, it's such a huge topic, Mike. And I think one of my frustrations with, you know, Matt, you asked about trends, like it's probably been, I don't know, five, six years. People are saying, we need to get upstream. We need to get upstream. We need to do, we need to do prevention. Totally agree. Where are the dollars being spent? And largely the dollars are not following that yet. There is some movement on that, um, but it can't be one or the other. You still have this group of people that need residential or that need intensive right. in-home or crisis intervention. Like you can't just completely neglect right. that to go prevention. Um, our services, we've moved about 10% of our services currently are for reunification. So mom and dad or mom uh, can take the kids back and the judge orders them back to the, the parent and we're following the child from wherever we've been working with that child and family. And we would like to be doing more of that. And I get asked all the time, what would it take? And I'm like, well, there has to be a funding mechanism in place to actually pay for the depth of services, the intensive services that are needed for rehabilitation of a family. Because even though Sally's happy, she's going home, there's still been a, a breach in that relationship with mom that she was away from. And that mom has her own trauma history that probably didn't get addressed in parenting classes and domestic abuse classes right. where they're checking a box to meet a service plan. So um, there has to be that that does have to follow. I'll say this going back to your point about where is the government spending money? I read recently that the state of Georgia, and let me just say, I love Georgia. We work in Georgia, love Georgia. Some of my best staff are in Georgia. So this is not to call up the state of Georgia because I this is the only number I have, but this is very common throughout the US. The state of Georgia spent $28 million last year on hoteling kids. That means for kids who did not have a place to stay because there wasn't a family, there wasn't a facility that would take them. They were sleeping in a hotel with a case worker watching them. 28 million. Like, well, if you redirected that towards the appropriate services for the highest youth, the highest needs youth, you you would probably see a different outcome because they're not going to get any positive outcome from yeah. that, except they're not homeless today. I mean, so we we have to ch have some significant changes and it does take us people like me and you informing policymakers about the real challenges and where the money needs to be spent. And we just have to keep beating that drum. I, I also think, you know, I did my early career in therapy was doing a lot of community-based work, a lot of in-home therapy, probably, you know, somewhat similar, a little different than what you all do, but similar families that are kind of on the brink of, this is the last stop before you start going down the residential road. And we know once you go down the residential road, it's hard to come back from it. 
Um, and these families were, you know, these were not just like all of us, but like these families were not always perfect. Like they're, you know, I, I'd walk in and it smells like a lot of weed in here today. Okay. Where are we going to do our session in the kitchen? Like, and you just, but you know, from a, you got to kind of compartmentalize something. And I was just always felt like this family, this family loves this kid and this family wants to be with this kid. This kid loves this family. Is, is everything in here happening the way that like um, I would like, or if I was a government social worker, would they check all the boxes? Like, would there be some red flags? Yes. But if we're weighing out the pros and cons of this kid going down the child welfare system versus staying with a family, it seems like there's no doubt that like, we should really, other than, you know, abuse, neglect, I get some of that stuff, but I think a lot of kids come to the system because of domestic violence situations, I think you referenced, which is now you're kind of like traumatizing the victim of a trauma by then removing their kid. It just feels like the bar for removal should be really, really high. And I wonder, is that being re-looked at? Because I also think substance abuse has such a big factor to play in kids getting removed from their biological parents' homes, which I'm hoping that, you know, it seems like we're shifting a little bit from, you know, the conversation around addiction in the eighties and nineties, where it was very kind of moralistic and like, you're a bad person if you use drugs to now, holy crap, this thing is out of control and it can get anybody and it can attack anybody. Like is, um, are some of those things shifting in terms of what we allow, like the messiness that we should allow biological families to endure before we actually remove a child. Yeah, I would say that's a, a trend in the a positive direction. There's more services and more tolerance by the court system around substance abuse. And so let's get the, the parent or the caregiver the right help that they need and make sure that their child can be with them and reunified. And in some cases, they're not even removing. I also think that, I think statistically, uh, nationally, the, the numbers are somewhere between 70 and 80% of kids are removed for neglect and we shouldn't demonize poverty. So let's get, let's make sure that the, and there's different standards of, of, you know, caring for a family and different cultural, you know, right. considerations. And so uh, there is movement on that front. And I also think there's real recognition around we will never have enough foster families and nor is that the right solution. So there does seem to be a trend in the right direction, but again, the dollars have to follow. You educated, I, I saw this a, a few months ago, you showed this to me and it stuck with me. It's probably gonna stick with me for like the rest of my life, but can you, I don't, I don't think anybody probably knows about what a foster care heat map is and what it means and what it represents to what's happening in our country. Can you just dive into that for us? Sure. So one of our partners did the, the technology around this heat map that's updated um, consistently on a monthly basis that shows that 50% of kids in foster care are in 5% of counties in the U.S. 50%. So you're talking about, about that. And you're in 25,000 yeah. kids in 5% of counties worse, it's, it gets worse, 25%. So a hundred plus thousand kids, about 120,000 kids are in 1% of counties in the U S. So what is that? It's 30 counties. 
So if you, we have this heat map. You're, and you're making us, Mike like write down notes and math. Back like, and I'm writing notes. <laughs> I, saw this, I saw this visually, Mike, and it blow, it'll blow your mind. It blows your mind. Maybe I can get the permission to um, share the map with y'all and you could splice Link it in it. here. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That'll, that'll be great. It's so powerful because if you know where the density of need is, then you make strategic battle plans for how do we address this need? It would be the places that you that you would suspect. I live 15 miles from the border of San Antonio and it is Bear County. San Antonio is one of the areas on that heat map. We have the highest removal rate uh, in the state of Texas for children coming into foster care in Bear County. Not mm. something we're proud of, but a lot of New York, you know, Southern California, Chicago, Florida is lit up like a Christmas tree. So there's certain urban areas that are where you can see that density of need. And, you know, we are, we are chosen continues to scale nationally. And what I've told my team and our board of directors is, listen, I would love to go vacation in Montana and, you know, tag on a work trip to that. But the density of need is not evident in Montana, like it is in certain parts of Georgia, where we're trying to be very intentional of like, let's address this problem in this particular county. So that heat map is disturbing, but I think it also helps us make better decisions about where we're making changes. Oh, I love that. And where we put time and resource, if we really want to change this again, you know, the, the handful of kids that are in the system in South Dakota, you know, we, we want them to achieve their wellness and their goals. But when you look at LA County and surrounding areas that are dark red, it looks like, you know, it feels like eight out of every 10 kids in that county are going into the child welfare system, which even though it's kind of localized there, it, 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 that's going to have just national implications, community-wide generational implications. It's crazy. But I love that you guys are using that as a way to figure out where do you want to go next? Because again, you're truly trying to solve problems. And like you said, you're not just growing because, well, let's just grow around neighboring states because that's easy. It's like, no, let's like go into the heart of, where this stuff's happening but yeah those those numbers mike like, that just blew me away um it's really sad again it's hard to it's hard to reconcile with how that happens exactly other than just kind of hurt begets hurt and again just generations upon generations of brokenness just keeps on happening extremely interesting and and hopefully we get some per- it would be lovely to get that permission to kind of splice that in here but one of the things that your conversation, you answering that question about the heat map made me realize is coming back to Chosen a little bit, you guys are actually intentionally seeking to to solve problems in certain areas. What areas are you in? Forgive me for not even knowing that. I, I knew Texas and you mentioned Georgia. Maybe ex- before we end this thing, I, I certainly want to learn a little bit more about Chosen. I don't know if, if I know enough. Sure. So because we have a telehealth model, we are serving families all over the country. Uh, We don't want to turn anybody away who is in need. And that was birthed out of shortly after our our initiative to start this pilot, we saw families coming to us from around the country saying, we're we're desperate. We've tried everything and we just didn't want to turn them away. So the telehealth model allows us to meet families where they are. And last year we served in 24 states. We have geographical expansion. Um, Texas is home base for me, so that is where our home office is. But we have geographical presence in Florida and in Tennessee. 
And our board of directors recently made a decision to start scaling at a different clip, a different pace. So currently we are looking at five regions of the country for next year, including Georgia, which is our third largest census uh, currently, South Carolina and, and the Carolinas, Houston, uh, which, which should basically be its own state because, and that is also one of the largest areas of need in the country, Arkansas and Southern California. So we're in talks with those folks. We've got about 15 areas of the country that we're looking at over the next three years, but that's where we're looking at actually having a true geographical presence because when you go into a state and, you know, one of my commitments when I'm in conversations around development is we're not looking for the onesie twosies. We want to make a concerted impact and be able to demonstrate that to the stakeholders who are paying for services, who want to see systemic change in their state. And we have to do that in a concentrated way, which takes the appropriate resources. So that's why we're looking at some of those geographical expansions. So five years from now, Jenny Chosen is sprawling, scaling, continued impact policy. Again, where are we going in five years from Chosen? And where do you hope we're going next in terms of child welfare? What's realistic to expect if, if things are if trend actually in the positive direction in the system? Well, that's a big question. And we have a moonshot vision to bring about systemic transformation um, by really seeing the system of care focus on relational connection, healing through connection, trauma responsive care, and a focus on well-being, not just welfare. And as I told my team, you know, when JFK in 1962, he said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. People thought he was crazy. We were way behind the Soviets. And, and we did it. We put a man on the moon in seven years. In 1969, we put a, an American on the moon. And so it is a moonshot vision to bring about systemic transformation. My uh, One of the heroes in our space, Dr. Bruce Perry, he says, you know, systemic change takes generations. It takes decades. And I am not at all saying that I'm the first one with this idea about systemic transformation, nor am I the only one talking about it. I'm just one of the soldiers that's in this fight to bring it about. And I would like to see it in my lifetime. And one of our board members said, how will we know that we've achieved that vision? And it really boils down to three things for me. Number one, language changes. Language is so important. And so we have to see a shift from welfare to well-being. We have to see people talking about healing through connection, which is a paradigm shift, not healing through healthcare, not healing through intervention, healing through connection and trauma responsive care. Those are three big changes in language. So first language, then policy, and the funding follows. That's how we know that we've achieved systemic transformation. So in the next five years, I would like to be able to point to, we are actually seeing the needle move. It's like, if you're preparing to send a rocket to the moon, well, in five years, you're going to have some different KPIs and some different measurables than you do today. So I would like us to have some tangible things that are showing we're moving in that direction. And I'm encouraged. I'm already starting to see some shift in around the country around, well, the talk around well-being a family and child well-being system. So I think it's plausible in our lifetime to see us move in that regard. In the next five years, there are several things that Chosen wants. 
number one, we want to be in working in those areas of the country with the highest density of need. We have two strategies. We have a ground strategy, which is what we're currently doing. We have an aerial strategy, which is really about thought leadership and changing the narrative. And we've got some really exciting things that are happening on that front around content development, training, speaking, writing, and so forth. So we're going to see that um, come into fruition that will work in tandem with our ground strategy to change the narrative. Well, so I'll say things, Jenny, I think you're more than a soldier. I think you sound like a lieutenant or a general or something. And, and again, I, I'm, an, I'm a natural optimist. I, I only get cynical sometimes about these large human services systems. But every time I talk to you, I walk away back to being an optimist, even about a broken system. So, um, and if you guys are getting 99% um, type outcomes for families, then holy crap, I hope you scale like crazy in the coming years. Um, that's a well, lot of thank you for that. And thank you for the encouragement. I, can I say one last thing to um, anyone in, who may be listening that's in the residential space? Uh, since you guys come from that space, you are seen, you are admired, and you are doing really hard and important work. And I am not saying that um, lightly because it is really hard work. And I want I want the audience to know that our services are for families who have experienced residential or whose kids may even be in residential. We love working with those families to repair and rebuild relationship. And I, I know that Matt and I agree on this. Um, the kid can make all the progress in the world in residential, but if the family's not doing the work, they come home to a system that's going to still create the environment that they left. And we are very passionate about that and restoring families to, to be whole. And so if we can serve your family or your um, residential facility in that way to share our services with kids that you're supporting, we would love to do that. My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building, as well as our residents and their families. My why is uh, because I want to create a safe environment, a uh, comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here at New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. In closing, uh, this being stuff that matters. We got a tradition, Jenny. We got a tradition. Tradi tradition. We're really trying to make it a tradition on, on, on the show. Uh, in your own words, this could be three to four, you know, key points that you really want to hammer home. Whether it's recapping what we discussed here today, or you know, overall your work with Chosen. 
uh, you know, just for you, what is the stuff that matters? Well, thanks for the question. (laughs) Healing through connection. The science shows it. Healing through connection. We can see it in any relationship. Trauma responsive care versus trauma informed care. Listen, I can know that I don't need to eat those donuts and I need to go to the gym in order to have optimal health. But knowing and doing are two different things. And if I eat the donuts and don't go work out, then I have no shot at having optimal health. So we've got to be trauma responsive. And I would really like to see a shift in us talking about family and child well-being and not just child welfare. Physical safety is to me a bare minimum. And we have had a system of last resorts that has only intended to that. And it's insufficient. Boom. There it is. There it is. That's awesome. But Jenny, this, uh, we can probably keep doing this for like another three hours, three days, uh, you know, whatever the case is, but, uh, this was, this was incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Jenny. Y'all got me going. I have a lot of words. So edit as necessary. So where can folks, um, find more about you or chosen, or if they want to get involved in y'all's mission and what you got going on, where can folks find you? Chosen.care can find us at chosen.care and you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active, Jenny Lord, and I'd love to connect with you. Jenny, thank you for your time. Thank this you so much. Yes, thanks so much. Thanks guys. Appreciate the opportunity. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.